Hello and welcome to Technicast, a podcast showcasing research from across the arts and humanities. I'm Isabel Sykes, and today I'm sharing with you the next episode of our Narratives of Nations series. We'll be hearing from Rosie Knowles, a Techne-funded PhD student at Royal Holloway. Rosie's mixed methods research explores the concept of therapeutic landscapes in the steelworks town of Port Talbot in South Wales. I'll be joining Rosie for a chat about her research later on, but for now I'll hand you over to Rosie herself to tell you more about what this really unique multifaceted project involves. Hello. So yeah, I'm Rosie and thanks for listening. Um, I think hopefully this project speaks to the podcast theme of narratives and nation as it's very much a site-based project. So a bit about the project background. I think it's important to convey how this project came into being. So I ended up choosing the site after conversations with my mum and my aunties who all grew up in Wales as they described going to stay in Port Talbot in South Wales with my great-grandparents who lived and worked there, and what it was like with my great-grandfather working at the steelworks. My first cousin, once removed, has written about my great-grandfather in the family history, and I'd like to share with you um, this extract. Anthony Hewlett worked as a doublet at the Baglan Bay Tin Plate Works for 40 years. He walked two miles to his work near the dock, taking a few sandwiches and a bottle of cold tea or a small beer, made by his mother out of dandelion stinging nettles, yeast and ginger. His work as a doubler meant he worked near the furnace from which hot sheets of steel were caught by a furnace man using long tongs. These were passed to him and he caught them with his tongs and doubled them over with his foot, which was encased in a doubling clog, a leather boot with a thick wooden sole edged with the steel rim. He became quite scorched in the face and his eyes suffered. His hands were blackened with burns and became sore, calloused and horny. Glycerin was applied to heal the burns and alleviate the soreness. One day the inevitable happened and he failed to catch the steel sheet thrown to him. The red-hot metal cut and burned his leg very badly. He was taken to hospital but recovered remarkably well. There were many accidents in work, generally because dangerous machinery was not sufficiently well guarded. There were also the slow deaths suffered from diseases caused by the poisons generated by these heavy industries, which were not well understood at the time. The mines were especially dangerous. His uniform was a Welsh flannel short shirt, which covered his body and upper arms. He wore old trousers held up with a belt and knee-length thick woolen socks. When he came home from work, his face was blackened and the whites of his eyes shone out. All the works closed for one week in summer. Most people saved all year to go on holiday for that week and new clothes were made for this highlight of the year. Where did they go? Not very far. Barry Island, Mumbles and Porthcool were all very popular. We always went to Mid Wales, like Aberystwyth, when we went into lodgings. The holiday in Landridnod consisted of getting up early and going mushrooming, which we cooked for breakfast, then to the pump room for our drink of sulphur or Calibeet water. It was awful. But father used to drink it and he said it made him feel better immediately. Then there was boating by the lake, playing bowls or taking long walks. In the evening we played games or sang around the piano. After reading this account, I became intrigued with the harsh conditions of the steelworks and wondered whether there were still issues with health and safety. 
I was especially interested in the trips to Mid Wales and my great grandfather taking a drink of sulphur water, claiming it made him feel better immediately. I wondered what the people of Port Talbot and steelworkers there today do now for healing from the intense pressures of working life. I was very interested in how people living in this heavily industrial environment form their own therapeutic landscapes to cope with the conditions of work and also how they navigate the pollution in the landscape. So I decided to move to Port Talbot to conduct an ethnography. I lived there for six months and was back and forth for another two months after that. I wanted to reflect on my own autoethnographic experiences of living there and attuning to this very different landscape and also on the experiences of steelworkers and local residents living there. The project also builds on my undergraduate and master's work, which has uh, explored creative methods and ethnography and geography. So a bit of background to Port Talbot. It's in South Wales and home to the largest steelworks in the UK, and it's one of the last remaining. The steelworks has been in decline over the last 50 years. It was at its height around 1960 and 20,000 people worked there, and this is reduced to around 4,000. Unemployment is very high, as is the deprivation and drug use. The health of the area is poor, with a higher than average number of residents who suffer from long-term illness. The Welsh Index of Multiple Deprivation suggests that the wards in the borough are among the top 25% most deprived wards for health in Wales. Neathport Talbot has the highest rate of death by suicide of any local authority area in Wales between 2013 and 2017. And it also suffers from some of the worst air pollution in the UK. And this is due to its location sandwiched between the steelworks and the M4 motorway, which literally cuts over Port Talbot. If you've ever driven that way to South Wales, you'll know what I mean. Port Talbot also used to be situated between the steelworks and the very large BP chemical works, which was demolished in 2003. So this project seeks to build upon the therapeutic landscape concept from health geographies. And this concept was first coined uh, by Will Gesler in 1992. He defined therapeutic landscapes as the physical and built environments social conditions and human perceptions, which combine to produce an atmosphere which is conducive to healing. So the early research focused on extraordinary places of healing, like pilgrimage sites and spas, and moved to focus largely on green spaces, such as parks, forests, gardens. And more recently, it's expanded to incorporate blue spaces, um, for example, sacred springs, coastal retreats and holy wells where water drawn from these sacred sites was considered to possess healing powers. However, there's been a recent move to explore the more everyday therapeutic landscapes. So this includes urban grey landscapes, such as urban edgelands, cafes and public libraries. The coloured categorisation of therapeutic landscapes has been defined as the palettes of place. And some studies have considered a blurred palette, considering the blues and greys of land, water, urban interfaces. So this project seeks to continue to challenge the perception that only green or blue landscapes are therapeutic, as it explores the different hues and colours of industrial landscapes, not just the visual aspect, but very much the sensory, felt and embodied experiences. It also experiments with creative methods, building on existing engagements with health geographies. So main contribution for my thesis is actually the methodological approach um, which is split into three parts. Um, the first part it is where 
yeah, it's, it's more of an autoethnography, experimenting with creative methods like storytelling, drawing, painting, and printmaking to try to convey these sensory and embodied experiences of what makes a therapeutic landscape. And the second part is kind of um, based around uh, myself joining this walking group down there. So I joined a men's walking group, um, which involves many current and ex-steel workers. So this just involved walking and talking daily on the industrial seafront. And the group tries to break down stigma surrounding men's mental health. And then the third part was just kind of semi-structured interviews with local stakeholders so trade unionists, councillors, church ministers, conservationists, the steel industry, try and build up a broader picture of health and well-being in the area. Um, so, yeah, I kind of have three main sort of like contributions from the project. The first one explores uh, toxic geographies and therapeutic landscapes. So, again, grappling with creative methods to explore everyday experiences um, of health. Storytelling has allowed me to convey um, my own experiences, uh, such as walking and unexpected oil slicks on the beach, um, swimming daily in the sometimes murky waters, always with the steelworks looming behind me. Um, drawing and field sketching was useful as it required me to look carefully and see things differently. Um, yeah, looking at sensory aspects of the landscape forcing me to sit outside in all weathers, noticing the different ebbs and flows of the steelworks. Um, one day I was sketching and a steelworker stopped to look. He noticed I was sketching the plumes of smoke from the steelworks. And he actually described to me the bangs and crashes you can hear from the steelworks at different times of the day. He said, I could tell you what the smells are, where the dust is coming from. Sometimes from the blast furnace, normally at about five o'clock at night, well, sometimes just as it's going into dusk, you hear this boom, hell of an explosion. Well, not really an explosion, but a release of gas. You see a big black cloud, and I mean a big black cloud, coming across whichever way the wind goes. People complain, but I say, well, do you want us to blow up the blast furnace? So drawing kind of opened up these new and unexpected encounters. I also conducted walking ethnographies and interviews with those in the walking group and their families. Um, their stories convey the prevalence of their own ill health, with many friends having unexplained and young experiences of cancer, especially those who lived near or went to school near the BP Chemical Works. They explain to me the families they know who have suffered also from very rare forms of cancers. The tensions between the recognition of the pollution and the potential health effects was normally coupled with the gratefulness of the jobs and prosperity the steelworks has brought to the area over the years, as well as many participants commenting on the likelihood of their health conditions being related to their environment, although this was often followed by speculation with, with little evidence or certainty. Tom Davies builds on Rob Nixon's concept of slow violence, referring to toxic pollution as a form of structural inequality arguing that not all toxic landscapes are invisible or out, or out of sight to everyone. Through Tom's research in Louisiana in Cancer Alley, he reveals how inhabitants witness impacts of slow violence in their everyday lives. It is not that stories are invisible, but more that their stories don't count. This is how it felt listening to many of experiences in Port Talbot. Doing a deep dive into data on health and pollution, I could find little evidence supporting the link 
Apart from back when BP, BP chemical works were up and running, there was a push for research from a local environmental group. In the 1980s, there was concern in Port Talbot for an alleged cluster of cancer, especially leukemia and larynx cancer near the BP works. There was concern over many deaths from both teachers and students in the nearby school. The results concluded that there was a 24% excess of larynx cancer. So that's, yeah, basically uh, outlining the yeah, the first kind of contribution of how we need to consider both the toxic and therapeutic elements of the landscape and how these kind of interweave and are constantly pres present and coexist together. Um, so the second main contribution explores how trauma can coexist with um, therapeutic landscapes. So um, I thought I'd start uh, the introduction of this with an insight into a conversation I had with Mal, who runs the charity in Port Talbot. We were walking along the seafront towards the steelworks at the other end of the beach. Its usual stream steam ribboning into the sky across the grey ocean, and he asked if he could read me a poem he wrote one day after one of the walks with the group. Mal suffered from an industrial accident in 99 at the steelworks. His leg was caught in a conveyor belt and he was told he'd never be able to walk again. He now miraculously walks on crutches, although he can't bend or move one leg. It's been a very slow recovery, but his PTSD and flashbacks have been the most debilitating, with the trauma surfacing into the present constantly, even 20 years on. He has explained to me bouts of severe depression culminating in suicide attempts and hospitalisation, as well as court trials and issues with tartar steel and compensation. Anyway, this is the poem he kindly said I could share. As my head spins with thoughts of fear, I watch the sunset on the end of the pier. Triggers set memories on fire. Of trauma, I remember so clear. Huge mach machines on the harbour that turn for hour after hour. Belts which carry coal and iron ore. Memories I do not want anymore. 23 years now under control. PTSD, though, never leaves your soul. It keeps coming back in so many ways. Oh, I, I wish I could forget them days. A freezing wind, bitterly cold air. Freeze my mind, I do not care. Trivial things that try to break me. Sunset, please set my mind free. I think this poem beautifully lays out the tensions in the industrial landscape. As Mal explains, the atmosphere, wind and the sunset freeze his mind. But paradoxically, the sight of the steelworks brings back memories and flashbacks of the traumatic accident. PTSD symptoms include persistently experiencing the traumatic event and can lead to other mental health problems like depression. In Alison Mounts' study on trauma, she describes how trauma can lie buried, but then effective eruptions move fixed sites of trauma to the surface. For example, effective eruptions arise through reading transcripts of interviews during the research process. The emotions erupt into the present moment and lodge into their new external home from one body to another. Similarly, Mal's trauma can unexpectedly erupt into his present experiences, reshaping his experience and whether it's therapeutic from moment to moment. It's also helpful to turn to feminist scholars' research on emotional geographies, like Gail Adams Hutchison's research into trauma in relation to emotion and effect. She uses the concept of the skin to explore barriers and containment of trauma, 
as trauma spills over these boundaries, exposing its fluidity. Gail's work focuses on post-disaster Christchurch, New Zealand. She outlines that traumatic flashbacks can fuse past with present and re-engage bodily senses in any time and place, remapping time and place onto bodies. Gail highlights how trauma, like in Mal's case, can fail to leave the body. It sticks to the skin, not only interrupting the everyday, but becomes embedded in the skin. Therefore, landscapes are neither just traumatic or therapeutic, but the two can coexist in interesting and complex ways. So the third contribution of my research explores the everyday, ordinary therapeutic landscapes in Port Talbot. I explore the minute detail of everyday encounters in the walking group to explore how crisis can become ordinary in industrial landscapes. I grapple with how therapeutic experiences may differ in industrial landscapes to those which we might consider normal or traditional. The research opened my eyes to different frame framings of what is considered therapeutic. I found my own definition of therapeutic differ greatly to the men's. I often seek moments of stillness or calm away from my everyday life of therapeutic experience, whereas the men's definition of something that benefits well-being was much more simplistic in some ways and embedded in everyday life. In some of the difficult life situations they found themselves in, walking in the industrial landscape became a means of surviving, a means to carry on. I draw on the work of Kathleen Stewart and Lauren Ballant to consider the effective significance of the ordinary or how crisis can become ordinary in many lives and capitalist regimes. These ordinary therapeutic examples I include use storytelling and composite fiction to give an insight into the struggles to gain access to the therapeutic landscape, highlighting the difficulties many face with anxiety for leaving the house, or also the unconventional grey tarmac, grey skies and grey smog from the steelworks, providing solace and comfort through reminders of identity, memory and histories. Also, by thinking through the ordinary and the everyday, it allows us to pay attention to the minute detail of therapeutic experience, and how it oscillates from moment to moment, from stuck situations and impasses to ruptures, wobbles and collapses into humorful and joyous situations. The ordinary is alive, charged, constantly murmuring, unfinished and evolving. We're never sure where it might lead us and whether this outcome will be therapeutic or not, despite the setting or landscape. So hopefully this very briefly outlined the takeaways from my project. It basically seeks to challenge this conception that therapeutic landscapes have to be green or blue and when trying to foster therapeutic landscapes we also need to consider the atmospheric and physical implications of going outside in industrial places and how that can be both harmful and healing. Hello how are you? Hi yeah I'm good thanks how are you doing? Good yeah I'm well thank you. Um, if it's all right with you, I'm going to dive straight into it. I, I really enjoyed your talk and I've got lots to ask. So, um, oh, yeah, you. are you ready? Yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, so, yeah, thanks again so much for sharing your research with us. Um, I really, really liked this project. And I think one of my favourite things about it is this family connection that you have with Port Talbot uh, and Steelworks especially. Um, so I was just wondering if you could say a bit more about your family's involvement in like the project's inception and if they've been collaborating with you on this in any way as well. 
Yeah, no, it's a really nice question. Um, yeah, I think I'm quite fortunate that um, yeah, I do have the family roots in the project. So, um, yeah, like I said, uh, my great granddad worked at the Steelworks for 44 years. Um, and actually, since then, uh, my family has kind of spread out. I've got quite quite a lot of family still in Wales, but a lot of them live um, in England. So, yeah, it's been really nice um, for my aunties. I have five aunties and um they all yeah they all stem from Port Albert so it's been really nice for them to kind of go back to the family history and they've been kind of digging up um memoirs and um yeah going back through the family tree um so that's been really nice and that's how I kind of got hold of um uh the sort of everyday accounts of life in Port Albert as a steel worker from my great granddad is through those kind of family histories um, but in in terms of like collaborating, because I don't have any family actually in Port Talbot, um, I think the the closest I've got to collaboration is actually through my mum. So she is a, um, a practicing psychotherapist. Um, so actually, yeah, she's she's had a big role in the project because it ended up being quite a heavy kind of mental health focus for the project. Um, so she she's ended up. Uh, in a sort of collaboration in a way um, where she's like very much supported me and given a lot of advice and guidance because um, I think I was quite naive going into the project about how um, how heavy some uh, the the sort of load of work was going to be working with very vulnerable people and especially with the men's group um, yeah some of them were really really quite vulnerable and on the brink um, so mum actually ended up being a bit of like a supporter and therapist in a way throughout because it was completely out of my depth like as a geographer um, I don't have any experience in um, in psychotherapy or counselling or mental health so, so yeah some of these things were really hard to navigate so yeah she ended up being a, a, yeah, a bit of a collaborator really in the project in that way um, so it's not like directly related to the family history really but um I guess she obviously does have some understanding of the area more than me. Like she uh, would go and stay with my um, well, her grandparents in Port Talbot. So she knows what life there was like. Um, and so you can probably relate to these um, participants and men that I was working with more. So, yeah, that was a, kind of a big collaboration for the six months that I was there. Um, so, yeah, support for myself, but also like um, trying to offer the best kind of support I could to them as well from my like very um limited pool of knowledge on on the topic of mental health so yeah that was probably the biggest collaboration apart from the initial kind of um searching around the family history wow that's that's so interesting and it's it's really I mean it's lucky in a way that you've got that that kind of knowledge base from your mum like so close to home because I did want to ask you about that about your experience of doing this um the ethnic research particularly dealing with you know people who are struggling with really intense mental health problems including things like trauma and PTSD um and you said in your talk that you saw moments of stillness and calm during this process so I just I just wanted to ask you a bit more about if you could say a bit more about uh your experience of finding therapeutic outlets for yourself um doing this kind of research yeah, it's kind of interesting because obviously the project is about um, looking at therapeutic landscapes for um, residents and people in Port Talbot. But then it did actually become kind of my own autoethnographic exploration of my own therapeutic landscapes. Like 
as I said, I was quite naive going into the research, having not done a project like this before. Um, and the scale of kind of the what what you take on personally and emotionally, it was like a lot bigger than I thought. So yeah, and, and also like moving somewhere um, where I don't really know anyone. My nearest family was in Swansea, so that's not too far away. But um, you're kind of living by yourself and taking on all this stuff and just going home to like an empty apartment and just like sitting with it. So yeah, I kind of, um, I did like multiple things like walking every day, obviously with the men, but then also my own walks. And then um, I joined a local like swimming dipping group, the um, kind of cold water uh, dipping groups down there. So that was really nice to sort of have my own kind of community. um, And I made my own friends through that. So that was really nice, like getting up early every morning and, and doing that. So that was my own kind of immersion in the landscape as well. And then um, I also joined a, um, I did an art course and that's kind of related to the PhD as well because I use creative methods. So I was kind of documenting my research process through printmaking, painting and drawing. But also that, um, I didn't really realise that would become such a, um, yeah, an important therapeutic outlet as well. I think it was a a process of expressing um, a lot of emotions really through through the creative process so yeah there was kind of a multiple and I joined a local choir as well and I've never really sung before so yeah it was kind of really trying to um trying to yeah get get a whole host of different outlets really to try and um yeah to try and cope with it so yeah I think those were my moments of stillness and calm really when I was kind of engaged in other in other activities to take your mind off it um and to try and process a lot of it because yeah it was it was a lot to take on and yeah I really didn't realize how how difficult it is um and especially with a big group like that and a a big group of men as well it was just a lot to navigate um so yeah (laughs) that's that's so interesting and I really like that like part of the methods the methods that you're using the creative outlets and um also became sort of part of the healing uh, aspects of it for you as well like that's such a nice way to kind of indicate the sort of embodied experience so are the kind of creative outputs going to be part of um what you create at the end of this project like are there going to be sort of exhibitions and things like that as well yeah no I'm I'm hoping to get an exhibition together um yeah so I'm still kind of in the process of creating um I did a lot like as I said in the field but as I'm writing as well I'm trying it's not a practice-based PhD but the methods are very much part of the process um so yeah there's kind of ongoing um drawing and painting at the moment so yeah I think hopefully there'll be enough for a, a small exhibition if I can get it together at the end I think it would be nice to kind of showcase some of it and uh, and yeah a lot of it will be featured in in the um actual thesis as well um either as like illustration or as like um I'm structuring it with like creative interludes as kind of breaks in the chapter so um to kind of offer a, yeah a different perspective of rep- representing the this research because a lot of it is storytelling um with yeah stories in the in the community and the men's stories as well but I think it's nice to have this kind of different medium of yeah drawing painting and and printmaking to to show different representations of these kind of toxic therapeutic landscapes (laughs) 
Yeah, I really like how there's like lots of different layers of sensory experience in the project. Like I think that's, it feels like a very um, kind of like well-rounded sort of like holistic uh, sort of way of researching that I really um, admire. I feel like that takes a lot of skill to be um, kind of dipping your toe in like loads of different sort of creative processes. Um, and I wanted to ask you some more about the um, the kind of sensory and embodied um, aspects of the project, because I know you've been doing this work for a while. And so I wondered if the pandemic has had any kind of influence on your research in terms of how these opportunities, people's opportunities for kind of sensory healing were made impossible um, during lockdown and particularly in relation to your work on men's mental health. I wondered if um, the pandemic had played into it at all. Yeah, definitely. I think it completely changed my project, actually, because I started it in October 2020. So kind of middle of all the all the lockdowns in the UK. So, um, yeah, I started out like obviously like we all did thinking that the pandemic would end quite quickly. So my initial like proposal for the funding and everything was actually on a project in Japan. So I was gonna, um, I was looking at forest bathing and nature based um, sort of green based healing programs, and especially forest bathing in Japan is like part of the national health program, and it's kind of like becoming more and more popular in the UK, um, and it's becoming um, more kind of socially prescribed as well. So that was the that was the plan to go to Japan for six months, and then um, so the following year it was obviously still really really difficult Japan especially was very hard to get into and no one was able to kind of do any research there um and then when I was like just a couple of months before I was I really had to leave and do some field work Omicron began and we were banned from all uh, <laughs> lots of countries so I then just sort of had a bit of a crisis point and thought well what can I do and that's when it went back to the family history and I, I think it was all meant to be because this is actually I don't know it feels it feels like the right thing to be doing like I feel very passionate about it and I feel like I have strong roots there and it's so nice to go back and explore those roots um so I think it was all meant to be but yeah I think that also influenced um my interest in like a forest bathing kind of like I don't know like maybe like middle class kind of hippie sort of practice to well how are these people in Port Talbot coping in the pandemic um it, it had had a profound effect there as well I think like a lot of the men I, I work with had said that it was due to the pandemic that their mental health had you know like slipped through slipped through the floor really so yeah a lot of the, the walking group had expanded massively and um it was kind of people's lifeline through the pandemic uh they weren't actually meant to keep running the groups but they did be, and I'm glad they did because I don't know what some of these men would have done. Um, so some days, apparently, they had 400 people turn up in the in the peak of lockdown. Wow. So, yeah, it wasn't great for that. But then that I guess that's one of the the big um, things that everyone was trying to weigh up was the, the toll on mental health or physical health and, you know, pr protecting yourself from the pandemic. But also, like, there's not really much point if it's at the detriment of your, your mental health completely. So yeah, I think I think that had a big effect on the research and how how much people were struggling really. Um, so yeah, there was a there was a lot of men in the group by the time I got there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think that's so interesting that it changed your project so much, and I think the fact that it went from 
um, a kind of international uh, project to something more local kind of reflects how, you know, the pandemic really encouraged people to kind of, you have to sort of assess your surroundings and think, well, what have I got immediately around me to help me through this and really kind of take stock of your local environments and people kind of relied on their surroundings, their immediate surroundings, I think a lot more. Um, and I've got to ask, what is forest bathing? Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. Yeah, it's a good question. I think I kept seeing it pop up during the pandemic because people were kind of turning to nature more and more as you say like turning to what they have in front of them um so it's kind of like um yeah it's based in like Shinto beliefs and it's um it's it's about kind of honoring the minute aspects of nature or forest so uh, what they have prescribed in their national health program is kind of you go on this like retreat and um you do kind of forest bathing walks and it um encompasses different rituals so you have things like mind mindful walking so it's kind of like mindfulness and walking and then um you might do like a stone ritual or like listening to water and it's just like really paying close attention in a in a very mindful way like being very still um and yeah kind of attuning to the to the ebbs and flows of a forest so um yeah and no, it's it's cool like they're, they're starting to do um you can do forest bathing workshops sort of around the country I did one in London um a couple of years ago which was quite good but yeah it's becoming quite like trendy I think in the in this sort of recent kind of turn to nature and stuff but um yeah no I still still very very much like it but I think uh I think this felt like there was a lot more sort of passion behind it um and yeah like you say I think uh it was quite timely with people turning to look at what they have immediately in front of them like in Port Talbot I feel like that's kind of always been the case because it's not it's not a very well-off community there's a lot of deprivation and things and and um the transport links to other areas aren't good at all so it's kind of yeah exactly what you said like you have to turn to what you have and for them that's this very sort of heavily industrial coastline but actually you can really make the most of that and um just even walking up and down it like for them for the men that's that's home and the, the steelwork symbolizes a lot of pride and identity so um so yeah it's, it's really quite something yeah that's so interesting I feel like um yeah the kind of you can see how the thread of um sort of people's relationship with uh nature really like runs through um I mean I could go on and on but for the sake of the podcast format I have one last question um which is I just I wanted to speak to you about um slow violence which you talked about uh, in your paper um and my question was do you think that it will continue to be possible for us to locate or build therapeutic landscapes as our landscapes become slowly less habitable and more hostile um due to the progression of the climate crisis yeah no I think that's that's a really really good question and very timely I think slow violence is so difficult because I think my as like what my thesis is trying to get across is like these constant tensions in the therapeutic landscape. So is is there actually like, I feel like my whole thesis is coming around in a circle where it's questioning, is there actually a therapeutic landscape anymore? Because you've always got like, it, the slow violence is always that work. There's always something in the atmosphere that we're breathing in and it might be invisible, or it might be visible, um, something in the food we're eating, um, you know, you know, GM foods and stuff like there's, there's a lot coming out at the moment. So we're constantly kind of coming into contact with 
um, with different substances and toxicities without even realizing. So yeah, I think definitely like our environments are becoming less habitable and hostile. Um, and that probably is going to get worse unless we do something massive about it. But uh, yeah, I think it's really difficult to define now what a therapeutic landscape is because um, yeah, it's becoming it's becoming uh, very difficult to kind of stick it in a box over there. Like, let's go out and like experience some wild, pristine nature. Um, it's uh, yeah, like in Port Talbot, it was it's trying to get across that actually therapeutic landscapes are just kind of inbuilt into the everyday and it might be a glimmer of something but is it actually a landscape in itself or is it a moment a fleeting moment or like passing experience um and then yeah another sort of um main thing in the thesis is part of this tension is we're constantly negotiating our own kind of emotional baggage which we bring into these landscapes anyway so like ptsd or trauma and our experiences can quickly oscillate between being traumatic or therapeutic so it's you know going to a landscape isn't going to automatically give you a, a therapeutic experience you've got all these different kind of atmospheric and emotional um factors kind of feeding into it so um so yeah I think it, I think it is going to become a lot a, a lot more difficult to kind of define this therapeutic landscape and we're going to have to become more creative and adapt more I guess to try and have these therapeutic moments as the as the climate crisis progresses. But yeah, that's a really, really good question. I'm definitely going to think about that more. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for coming to speak speak to me about your research and for contributing to the podcast. Um, I think it's going to be a really exciting episode. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you and thanks so much for asking me. It's been a, a great opportunity. Thank you again to Rosie for her contribution this week. And thank you for listening. I absolutely love doing this interview with Rosie and I can't wait to hear more about the outcomes of her project. If you'd like to turn your research into a podcast, please get in touch with us via the email address in our bio. Alternatively, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Technicast or on Instagram at Technipodcast. Thank you. See you soon.